If you were to walk through Harvard Square on a day where there's good weather, it's possible that you might walk past a man named George Vale. George is a retiree who, out of a desire to help people, he sets up a small little camping chair, a small little outdoor chair, much like the chairs many of us brought when we had services outside in the middle of COVID. He sets it up and offers free advice, offers to answer questions for anybody that would like answers. He normally does not lack for conversation partners. Sometimes a line even develops. By George's count, most folks just have kind of basic, lighthearted questions. Hey, do you have somewhere you can recommend for me to get a cup of coffee or to grab lunch? Do you think it's going to rain later? Where's the nearest bathroom? It's about 80% of the questions, more lighthearted in nature, but there's 20% of them that George receives that are questions that are far deeper, that are born of greater tumult in the heart. People wrestling over the meaning of life, the pain of loss, present circumstances that are disorienting and confusing, paralyzing fear of the future. Now, God does not set up a chair and offer to give us free advice like that. If you yearn for some sense of direction, some sense of assurance that everything will be okay, where do you turn? It's not uncommon for me to be listening to church members, those that seek me out for pastoral care or counsel, and they say something similar to what I've said in my life before. I just wish God would tell me what to do. Give me an answer. Write it in the clouds. Somehow, help me to know how to make my way through this situation. I think that's why we find someone like George appealing. But I want to propose a different way for us to look at dilemmas that we have and times we so desperately want an answer. When our circumstances are confusing, when they're trying, when we're facing the question of what does this mean about myself, what does this mean about God, we need to be careful in understanding that our circumstances will either shape what we believe about God, namely what I am facing right now is so big, so daunting, so painful, it must tell me that God does not care. Or, what we believe about God will shape our circumstances and give us hope in the midst of them. There will be one dominant thing that drives our thoughts, either that circumstance or that God. So you might not have the answers so the great questions that you carry in life, but you do have a God who is majestic in His reign over us and who gives us Himself in a way that we can humbly trust Him. So what I'm going to argue from Psalm 93 is amidst the dangers of this world, our hope is in our sovereign God. Let me say that again. Amidst the dangers of this world, our hope is in our sovereign God. I invite you to follow along as I read. The Lord reigns. 
He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. May God write the truths of His Word on our hearts this morning. And may in His compassion... He minister these truths to us as we need. Remember, we're exploring the topic or the question of what do I make of God when my circumstances seem out of step with these things that I see or I hear or we sing about, talking of His goodness? Is my despair going to inform what I think about God? Or is my God going to inform my despair? What do you tell yourself? When faced with that prospect. The first thing Psalm 93 tells us to tell ourselves is that God is is king. God is king. This is verses 1 and 2. The psalmist, and I, I think this is one of the unassailable benefits of Scripture, the psalmist, he doesn't get lost in empty platitudes. He doesn't say, and God doesn't say to us, well, you know, if you look at it from this angle, the situation is not that bad. God doesn't look down upon us in our despair and say, you know, there's a glass half full way to to look at this. He doesn't resign himself and his circumstances to fate. The psalmist doesn't believe like there's some divine orchestrator of events, but he's coldly unknowable, unapproachable. No, what Psalm 93 does is it picks our faces up out of the dirt where our tears have been flowing and they've formed a little crust of that dirt that sticks to our faces. The psalmist reaches down and he picks those up and he says, may I show you that God is King. I don't know if you saw much of the coronation of King Charles a few weeks ago. It was early on a Saturday morning. I didn't see it. But you may have saw the pictures that came out of it. The new king crowned. Given all sorts of scepters and orbs that were intended to illustrate his position, his reign over his commonwealth. He's crowned with these adornments. And sure, the king, he has more power than you or I have. But he is ultimately small in power and in scope. Psalm 1 tells, or verse 1 tells us the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Unlike King Charles, God is not clothed with fine garments or given golden scepters that tell everyone he's powerful. No, it is inherent. It is foundational to who he is. He's robed in, I don't even know what that looks like, but just robed in great majesty. He puts on his strength as if it's a belt. 
He is sovereign over his creation. He's sovereign over you and me. His, and his sovereignty is unwavering. It is unflinching. He does not come and go. He does not pass by. He doesn't have office hours that we have to catch him whenever he's in and have to fear that he's going to be out soon. No, he just sovereignly reigns. Charles will have, what, 15, 20, 25 years to reign should the Lord give him a full, long life. Meanwhile, God's throne is established from of old, from eternity past. He has, let your mind set on this truth. God has never not reigned. See, the psalmist tells us this at the end of verse 1 and end of verse 2. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Now, you might ask yourself upon hearing this, it's a really profound question. Honestly, Stephen, what does that have to do with me? Well, if you're in the middle of a storm now, and you need something, someone to grab hold of. You have an unassailable king who is sure. He has a steady foundation. He can withstand the storm. He sits on his throne from everlasting to everlasting, clothed in majesty and strength. Behold our God. But if you would say, honestly, things seem pretty calm, pretty quiet, pretty good right now. What's that got to do with, what's this have for me? If you're not in the storm right now, let me ask you, when is best to prepare? Let's, let's talk about brutal nor'easters, blizzards. Now, some of you are saying, Stephen, you're really going to bring up, bring up blizzards? We don't talk about those in the summer. But the, when the winds are howling at 60, 70, 75 miles an hour, and the snow is blowing sideways, the, ro- the roads are flooded, and the power has gone out, is that when you look up and say, well, I guess I should probably check and see if the generator works? Or you might say, um, yeah, I, I, honey, do you think the gas station still has gas? No, you prepare beforehand. If you're not in the storm, receive Psalm 93 right now and all that it would have for you to file away for safekeeping in your heart when the storm starts to blow. But another question begins to percolate in my own mind as I read something like Psalm 93. And if I'm going to be honest, this is the single biggest question that flexes my mind about Christianity. Some of you are really saying, oh, 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 this is good. I'm going to hear what the pastor, what, what perplexes him about Christianity. Let's, let's, let's lean in a little bit and listen. Are you ready for it? Here it is. If God is king, if he is robed in majesty, if he has put on strength as his belt... As the psalmist tells us here, if that is God, well, what about the bad? What about the evil? What about the apparent meaningless, horrible suffering that our world knows, that perhaps you know from life experience? What about the suffering that the headlines seem to always remind us is new and renewed every day? You see, we, we, in our hearts, we say, I'm ready to receive the good and to thank God for his blessings upon me. But what of the bad that wreaks havoc upon our world? What do I do with that? 
Because Stephen, you're showing us Psalm 93 saying God is rothed in majesty and strength. Well, first of all, I cannot answer this question in a philosophically exhaustible manner in one sermon. But more directly for us gathered in this room is the emotional weight of such a question. What I can say is that Psalm 93 serves as one medication and a Bible full of treatments for the weary, fearful heart, for the questioning mind. So what the psalmist is coming in here and doing is he's not saying, hey, don't worry about any of that. But what he's doing is saying, hey, for the one who wonders where is God, he's saying, I want you to be reminded that he is mighty. He is on his throne. The Bible gives us an inexhaustible number of answers of ways in which we can start to process what do I make of these great questions of of evil and suffering and a God who is great and glorious. But what I can do is if I answer that question, you might say, okay, Stephen, you're punting on that question right now. Well, what I can offer as brief consolation is that when I find myself thinking, God, what about the suffering? In my limited wisdom, I cannot give a full answer, but I can look at a Savior who emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, who went all the way to His own cruel, brutal death. And that gives me at least something, somewhere to work from with a God who is not detached or disinterested in the sufferings of this world. He's acquainted with, He has experienced the evils of this world. And secondly, and I picked this up from Tim Keller, if we're going to believe that God is totally powerful in His kingly might, and we're going to ascribe to Him that He could eliminate all suffering, my suffering, you name it, if I'm going to say I believe God is powerful and that He could do that if He really wanted to, then does intellectual, intellectual honesty not demand that we have acknowledged that if He is all-powerful beyond our abilities, that he could also be all wise. And there might be reasons that I cannot fathom that he in his total wisdom has not eliminated that suffering. So maybe the answer to these questions is to not look away from Scripture, but to search it more. And as we move on from this, this is where the psalmist helps us Because he doesn't live in denial, he does not live in hallmark platitudes, rather he brings the kingship of God before us and interacts with our sufferings as well as the sufferings of the world. So the first thing we see in verses 1 and 2 is that God is king. The second thing we see in verses 3 and 4 is that the world is dangerous, but God is mighty. The world is dangerous, but God is mighty. It's interesting, oftentimes in Scripture, The dangers and threats that people face were described in relation to, they were illustrated by like waters threatening to just drown or to destroy the people. This is what we see in verse 3, where the psalmist writes, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. It is as if the psalmist is saying, Lord, the floods, they're going to overtake me. 
the psalmist speaks through these ancient pages and says, you might find it difficult to grasp the kingly reign of God, but I bet it doesn't take a lot for you to say, yeah, I know that feeling, that emotion, that lament, that sorrow, where you feel as if life is treating you like a punching bag, and you feel that you are going to drown. The world is dangerous. God knows this. We know this. Now, how do I take the floods that I'm being swept away by and understand them in light of God who reigns as king over us? One of my favorite preachers, Ligon Duncan, has pointed something about, out about this imagery in verse 3 and how it relates to the hymns that the church sings. I want to reference three hymns. I want to illustrate this with three hymns that those who have come before us in the faith have given to serve our hearts when the waters are rising. First, William Cooper's great hymn, William Cooper, the hymn writer, uh, 18th century, battled terrible mental illness and depression for much of his life. His most well-known hymn is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. The first verse reads, God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. That line, He plants His footsteps in the sea. Duncan, Lincoln Duncan points out that if God had planted His footsteps on sand or in the mud, you would be able to see them. But he plants his feet in the sea. You can't see those footprints. So you're left at a place, you don't know what he's doing. You don't know where he has come from. You don't know where he is going. And William Cooper is describing that. Lord, I don't know where you are. I don't know what you are doing. I don't know where things are going. But then he writes in the next part, in the, in the next part of this verse, what is it? We just read it. And he says, and he rides upon the storm. You don't know what's happening with the floodwaters. All you know is they are rising. But the psalmist says, God is in total control. Remember what we saw in Luke chapter 8 just a few weeks ago when we were in the Gospel of Luke before we paused for the summer? Jesus and his disciples were in a boat. A terrible storm was raging. The disciples thought they would die, but Jesus woke up and he rebuked the storm. Luke graciously shows us that Jesus is our God who is sovereign over the storm, over the crashing waves that crash over the sides of the boat, over the sinking ship. And he's saying, you want your God who is with you in the storm. If you want that, there's one place to look. One place and one place alone, and that is Jesus. Grab hold of him and do not let go. And know that the wonder of the gospel is that as you try to hang on, but you feel like your grip is starting to, to, to let go, you will see that he is the one who has hold of you and he will not let you go. Next hymn to consider as we think about this. We sang this just la this last week. The wonderful hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. It has this line in it, When darkness veils... His lovely face, 
What does that mean? The, the darkness of my circumstances seem to hide him from me. I can't see him. I'm, going, I'm, I'm risking concluding that he is absent, that he does not care. He says, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Do you see that imagery, that language of the waters, the storm, the sea? How does your anchor hold in the storm? How does your anchor hold in the storm? Jesus is the anchor. He is the Lord. Is your heart, has your heart taken hold of him by faith? He's Lord. He is king. He is mightier than the storm that we, that you, that I am enduring. One last hymn to consider. We'll sing it in a few precious moments after this sermon. It is well with my soul. I've told this story 15 times. I'm now going to tell it a 16th time. Many of you know this. In 1871, Horatio Spafford, and they don't name them like they used to, do they? <laughs> Horatio Spafford lost much of his personal wealth in the great Chicago fire. But this would not be anywhere close to the greatest tragedy to befall him. Two years later, in 1873, Spafford put his wife and four daughters on a ship to sail to England. In a terrible disaster, the ship collided with another ship, and it sank quickly, and his four daughters perished. His wife alone escaped with her life. Upon receiving word of the sunken ship, he also received a telegram from his wife that only said two words, saved alone. Spafford got on a ship to go be with his grieving wife, and as he sailed over the same waters where his daughters had perished, he wrote, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot he has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. This, this, this verse is fascinating. Because you have at the beginning calm waters, a peaceful river, when peace like a river attendeth my way. But then you have crashing waters, a sea billowing over, crashing in. And he says, how is your soul in either one of those situations? Perhaps you don't handle success that well. Perhaps you need to learn to sing, it is well with my soul, to find your all in the Lord when everything is good. And you're tempted for your eyes to veer away. That's just a side note. We're in the storm right now. Jesus is king. He rides on the storms. He can, he can save me in the storm. Or if the storm takes me out, I know he will deliver me to glory. So how could Spafford write, it is well with my soul. The weight of his answer and the weight of our hope today as one sitting before Psalm 93 the weight of it is in verse 2. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. And listen to this. That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed His own blood for my 
soul. What the psalmist wants us to know, what Horatio Spafford wants us to know as we sing this, is to not look at the sea waves billowing over us and conclude that God is absent, but look to the cross and see that Christ has regarded your helpless state, my helpless state, our helpless state, and hath shed His own blood for your soul. Dear saint, when you feel you are adrift at sea and you do not know where to turn, run, run, run to the cross. It was at the cross that the greatest destruction that could come upon you was dealt with fully and finally by Christ. Jesus endured the perfect storm of God's wrath in our place that in Him we might rest in the fullness of grace. More verses to this great hymn. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Then you look not only at the present, you not only look at the past, but you look forward. And this helps to grab hold of your heart. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Do you see what's happening here? Life is scary, but the Lord is mighty. And we don't look at our circumstances to determine His might. We look at the cross and the resurrection and the reigning Christ. And we say, Lord, hold on to me. And He will. There's no doubt about it. Jesus did not shed His precious blood for you, dear Christian, to then say, all right, I've had enough, I'm letting go. No, 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 no. Now, we've been running full speed. Now, I want to press the brakes. Slow the train down just for a moment possible this sounds foreign, indistinguishable to you if, if, you're, if you're not sure what you think of the Christian faith or of its importance and significance to your life. You might say, okay, I understand you Christians, it, it resonates with you, but eh, I'm having a hard time locking in on it. Think of it like this. Our, our world does not lack for sorrow or for suffering. All of us know that. We can, we can start at that basic point. But what I, what I would posit is that if you don't have Christ, you, you actually don't have anywhere that you can truly run to to put that sorrow and that suffering. Apart from that place where we can 
place it where we can begin to understand, where we can, where we can start to trust a king and a God that rules over and reigns over this. We don't have anything beyond a shrug and a dismissal and an attempt to cope and hope that nothing like that happens to us. While we put our heads down and go back about our business in this dark and cruel world. But the absolute beauty of Christianity is that it gives color. It gives vividness to a drab, dull understanding of life and suffering. And the invitation is here for you by faith to step into the light of Christ, the light of the gospel, the light of Christianity, and find hope. Not hope like everything will be all right, but but bedrock, sure, grounded hope that is anchored to a person, anchored to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. See, this is what Christianity does. C.S. Lewis explains this well in his book, That Hideous Strength. He describes a man who all he knows is dust, his world is described as dusty, full of broken bottles. His environment is dry and choking. Think about like all the, all the smoke that's been over us. You saw the images from New York City a couple of weeks ago. And, and just, 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 just the world is just colored in, in this dry, smoky haziness. But Lewis describes this man who is awakened to transcendence. And he had never thought of this before. All he had ever known was what was right before him. But he slowly was awakened to something that was beautiful, that was lovely, that offered pleasures that far exceeded the gray and ugliness that he had ever known. He began to understand reality like a TV that went from, from fuzziness, black and white, to color and vivid, ultra-high definition. And he found this not in the cruel, unknowable hand of fate, but in a good king who is mighty, who rules over him and invites him to come and know him. We all know the floods. The question is, do you know the one who is mightier than the floods? Just listen to verses 3 and 4. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Remember, I'm arguing amidst the dangers of this world, our hope is in our sovereign God. Sovereign means our God is king. The world is dangerous. Our God is mighty. Now let's bring it all home with the knowledge that we can trust our mighty king. That's the third point, final point. You can trust God, our mighty king. Upon recounting the floods that threatened him as well as the character and capabilities of his mighty God, the psalmist concludes by writing in verse 5, Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The ultimate question that rests before each of us is, God is mighty. The floodwaters are rising. Will I turn away, unwilling to trust Him? Or will I turn to Him and trust? Even if it means I say, Lord, I don't understand it, my heart is feeble in believing you, but right here, right now, I know your decrees, I know what you do, and they are trustworthy. Will our circumstances inform us about God, or will God help us to understand our circumstances? Perhaps 
this day, you need to do business with God. Spend time with Him in His Word and in prayer. Maybe in this passage, you've begun to realize that you've, you've perhaps for a while, perhaps for years even, you've held a grudge against God. You've, you've harbored anger against Him, not trusting Him because of something that happened to you in days, years, even decades past. Perhaps you harbor or hold bitterness in your heart over circumstances from life that proved painful. Perhaps Father's Day is a day that is not joyful for you, but is a day of difficulty for a number of reasons. And the idea of trusting your heavenly Father is beyond comprehension. May I encourage you to take time today, this afternoon, before you go to bed tonight, take as much time as you need in this psalm. Read, reread this psalm, and you might say, I, I, I don't know that there's an answer that I can get that will satisfy my heart. But ask God to help you to see His might. Help you to see His might and help your heart to begin to trust Him even when you can't make sense of what has come upon you. You don't have to get all the answers. Why? Why did this happen? But ask God to help you maybe not have the answer to why, but to have hope in the who. And that is Him, our mighty King. And run back to the cross. Run, run, run back to the cross. Because here's what the cross does. The cross enables us to trust the heart of God, even when we don't understand the hand of God. And allow me to give you a tip. Come to God and drink deeply from His Word. And you will find Him mighty and worthy of trust. We don't come to a God sitting in a chair and get advice and find peace amidst the deepest questions of our heart. That's like expecting a full five-course meal to fill our stomachs as we run by it while running a marathon. And we stop at like one, or we just run by one of those tables and grab a cup of water. No, we have to stop and feast. But if you can stop and pause and dwell in his word and resolve in this moment, in this day, Lord, I am going to linger here until you become greater than these circumstances that terrify me. What you will begin to see is you will begin to find a hope that rests not in somebody who sits in a chair and can offer you answers to life's questions, but in a God who sits enthroned on high, ruling over His creation, sovereignly holding your heart in His hands, and giving you Himself. Pray for him to give you a heart of verse 5. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. 
amidst the dangers of this world. Our hope is in our sovereign God.